So we are continuing in a sermon series out of the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in a city called Corinth in first century Greece, a very way out, licentious, anything goes, smart, prosperous sort of city. And uh, it's a lot like our cities in that regard. And Paul has been teaching them about what it's like to walk out faith practically on a day-to-day basis. And, And this week... We're getting down to the end of the book. We're going to do chapter 15 this week and then close it up uh, next week. Um, And this week's topic is eternity. Always appropriate as we talk about the life of faith. And I think particularly uh, this week, um, you know, I was thinking about uh, eternity and about how we invest our life uh, in eternity uh, due to um, my dear friend Mindy, you know, getting shot and, and stuff like that causes you to think about how dangerous life can be and how dangerous life uh, following Jesus uh, can, can get. When, when I think about Mindy, I always think the, the picture that I conjure up in my mind when I think of her is, is her in this gymnasium uh, carrying heavy things. If you know anything about Mindy, uh, when she was here with us, she was always she was coming early to set up, staying late to tear down. She was always tearing down the stage or stacking the chairs or, or something like that. Just a, a very servant-hearted gal. And, uh, you know, whether, whether it's serving us here by doing, you know, the more thankless chores of the church or serving the Lord in Indonesia by tra- trying to just simply carry the love of Jesus to people who haven't heard anything about Jesus. It's the same, you know, it's a picture of a, of a young woman who's really investing her life in serving people uh, for, for the Lord's sake. Uh, but when something life-threatening happens in the course of that followership, as it did for Mindy this week, you know, it, it causes you to pause and reflect. I'm, she's, she's living a for real life, right? Uh, she's living a life where her choices to follow Jesus could, could literally get her killed, if not by uh, people who are assaulting her because, you know, maybe because she was a foreigner. You know, there are other risks involved um, as she just walks out love uh, in Jesus' name. We're called to, to do that, though, right? We're called to lay down our life for Jesus, to pick up our cross daily and follow him. It is supposed to be a for real sort of life. Uh, maybe not all of us will face literal death uh, for Jesus' name's sake, but we should all be laying down our life in service and in love, here or there, one way or another. It, it is for real. How can you do that? You know, what, what makes sense of that if going to live so extremely for God that, well, you can't even see? You know, it involves a lot of faith. It involves a lot of, I don't know, involves a lot of eternity, I think. It involves a lot of thinking about the next life rather than this one and finding joy and and strength uh, in that. Um, I, uh, naturally speaking, I'm not the happiest person in the world. Um, I'm not bubbly uh, in my personality, as many of you know. So I have to think hard about joy. Joy is one of those major Christian virtues that I don't come to naturally. I need to work at it and, and invest in it. It's always been <clears throat> part of my exploration with Jesus. Well, how does one 
stay joyful in this life. And I, I've always had a strong suspicion and understanding that the key to joy in this life was to rest secure in the next life. It has something to do with eternity. Uh, and I've often explored it, debated about it, argued about it. Um, one of the real fruitful relationships I had in this regard uh, was with a, a young pastor. This was years back. Uh, the guy's a little bit older than I am. And, uh, and, and a fellow who is really committed to the life of joy in Jesus, which I found helpful um, because I'm always looking for insight and help uh, in that regard. He preached the joy of Jesus. He preached uh, the joyful messages that the Bible preaches. And there certainly are many of them. Helpful verses like I don't know, from Nehemiah 8. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That if you're going to be a strong person on your spiritual journey, you need to be a joyful person. The joy that the Lord gives you will make you strong in life. That's a lesson that I needed to learn, that I needed to meditate on. Or when Jesus, speaking to his disciples uh, in the Gospel of John, uh, describes what he has come to bring. He said, I have come to bring you life and life abundantly. You know, Jesus came to give us abundant life, which sounds very rich. It sounds... Uh, very prosperous uh, in a way. And that's a, that's a good, good point for me uh, to think about. This fellow, this pastor friend of mine, really preached that aggressively. And he seemed to have a philosophy about it. And this is what we argued about. And eventually we got into tension about it. Uh, he said, you know, life is supposed to be joyful. He preached that message at his young church. The church really prospered. It really blossomed. It started to grow. And the message that he touched on most weeks was, if your life is not joyful, you're not doing it right. God has come to bring you joy, so if you're not feeling joy, something is wrong. You're not doing life right, therefore you have to change your circumstances uh, to get it right. And that's what gave me pause. It's like, I mean, do we, really, do we really pursue joyful circumstances? I mean, if I'm not feeling happy, does it mean my life circumstances are wrong? Or, or does it mean something else? And that's what we would talk about. Because I had in my mind all of these verses that are about tough circumstances and joy. Sacrificing your life and finding joy. Uh, like uh, from the epistle of James, he starts his book by saying, Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. In other words, when times are hard and your faith is being tested, Celebrate. Be joyful because you're growing. You're headed toward something, something higher, something better. Uh, or when Jesus says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. That sounds tough, you know. That does not sound like life that would be immediately joyful. Or when God said of the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote the book of 1 Corinthians... I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That doesn't sound any fun at all. How would you like that calling on your life? Uh, yeah, I have purpose for you. I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my name. Let's get to it. Limber up. I don't want, I don't want that call. Uh, but we are told that following Jesus is a life of joy nonetheless. I conclude that there must be a joy that comes from the freedom of being anchored beyond our circumstances, right? It's not that you have a great life. It's that you will have a great afterlife, I think. And I think joy is really anchored in eternity. 
That's how we navigate the tough times here. It's, it's the joy of, I know how this ends. You know, whatever's going on, I know how this ends, and therefore I'm happy. It's the joy of, I know how this ends, as opposed to the joy of, whee, this is fun. That's my dramatic moment for the, for the day. Thank you very much. TJ's in Scotland, so I feel like it's my job to bring a little thespian expertise into the... I'll say that again. I think you missed it. It's the joy of, I know how this ends, as opposed to the joy of, whee, this is fun. You can do it that way, too. Marissa is so much better at joy than I am. Um, I, I think of an analogy from marriage. Um, a marriage. Marriages typically start with, whee, this is fun. But there always comes a point in every marriage, where it's like, not so we. Um, you know, uh, marriages usually start with falling in love. Wee! But if you're going to have a good marriage, it actually has to become about growing in love, right? You have to sort of push through those times. You have to get deeper. Falling in love is wee. Growing in love is more like, uh. Thank you. Thank you. The expressiveness is wearing me out, people. It's just a little bit beyond my gifting. Tell the truth. Speaking of wonderful, wonderful marriages, fun every day. She brings me coffee. Whee! Let's just all do that together on the count of three, shall we? One, two, three. That's the only Sunday we will ever do that at Blue Water Mission. First and last time. I hope that you enjoyed it. So, uh, When a marriage hits tough times, or when life hits tough times, or circumstances seem tough, do you conclude something is wrong, or, or do you conclude it's probably time to grow? You know, it's probably time to get, to get onward. Uh, if it's time to grow, then you really have to anchor your joy in eternity as opposed to anchoring joy in circumstance. And, and that lesson is perhaps not unfamiliar uh, to you if you've been following Jesus for, for some time. Footnote to the story I tell about that young pastor that was so helpful to me. Uh, his church blossomed, like I was saying, a lot of people came. And then, uh, as often happens with churches, it, it hit some rough patches, it hit some rough times, at which point he resigned from the church. And he resigned by sending out a letter uh, in, in which he said, uh, uh, this experience has been a great blessing for me. But I found that recently I am no longer personally thriving, so I must resign. And, and it reminded me of the old breakup line, this just isn't working for me. This just isn't working for me, and therefore I quit. I'm going to go find someplace else that feels more joyful. Uh, uh, you see, that, that does feel like the logical extension of someone who looks for joy in circumstances. When times get tough, you're going to leave. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, well, this isn't really working for me. Um, sometimes you have to leave tough circumstances. Sometimes the calling of the Lord is elsewhere. Um, but joy can be anywhere. Personal thriving can be in any circumstance, provided that your life is anchored in eternity. And that's, that's what Paul is talking about today. Uh, 
and Paul is talking about it to the Corinthians uh, in light of talking about resurrection. He's talking about the importance of understanding the truth, the reality of our resurrection unto eternal life. And he puts it this way at the end of the passage that we're going to go through today. He says, if it is only for this life that we have hope in Christ, in other words, if following God, the success of following God is only measured in terms of your earthly life, then we are of all people the most to be pitied. If there is no afterlife, if there is no eternity, if you don't have eternal rewards, if, if all you're living for is this life, then you are the most pathetic person on earth. You're most to be pitied. Uh, in other words, if there is not an afterlife, then this whole faith thing is worthless. Absolutely useless to you. Which, which is just really powerful language. Uh, so let's read through that. Uh, the passage is on the back of your program and also up on the big board. Unfortunately, due to a typo probably in an email that I sent, what you have on your program is 1 Corinthians 1 through 18. We actually are reading 1 through 19, so there's one extra verse, but you can follow along up there. This is what Paul says as he begins to wrap up his teachings to the Corinthians. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. This is, what, this, is a, this is what you're living for. By this gospel, you are saved, or in Greek, you are restored. This is the whole ball of wax, in other words. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to, otherwise you have believed in vain. Wow, that's really somber. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, namely... That Christ died for our sins according to scriptures and was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, which is to say Peter. And then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, which is to say his biological half-brother. Then to all the apostles, and least of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. In other words, I wasn't one of the original apostles, but indeed, the risen Jesus appeared to me as well, so I can testify personally that he was raised from the dead, and so can literally hundreds of other people. He was raised from the dead, is what Paul is trying to say. He says parenthetically, For I am the least of the the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In the early years, Paul was trying to kill and beat up Christians. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. In other words, you know, Paul describes himself. He's, He's like a C student that works hard. You know, the least of all the apostles, but dang it, he's putting his all into it. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believe. Jesus died, but came back to life. You got to understand that. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And here we, we get to the issue, the problem that the Corinthians were experiencing. Somebody was, was convincing or somehow they had begun to believe that there is no afterlife. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. We're useless and we're liars. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Uh, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And then it ends, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. I think the problem that Paul is getting at here, uh, if I were to put a kind of a postmodern label to it, would be the problem of spiritual humanism, which might sound like a funny term, but, but, but you know it, right? This sort of spirituality that is about this life, but not about anything else. It's, it's sort of, I would describe it as spirituality without the supernatural. You can be spiritual, but nothing supernatural or too weird or too strange is involved. So you can kind of, yeah, you know, you can kind of believe in God. You can live a moral or an ethical life, but you're not going to get way out there and say that you believe in an afterlife or a resurrection from the dead or, you know, a judgment of the dead or anything crazy like that because that's just weird, you know. So you're spiritual but not supernatural. You're sort of casually spiritual, not hardcore supernatural. Sounds kind of funny, but do you recognize the philosophy? I think it's hugely popular. You know, people want to embrace the niceties of spirituality, but not really believe anything that is beyond their kin, beyond their experience, their understanding, because that makes them feel, I don't know, naive or, or something. Anyway, this spirituality had crept into the Corinthian church uh, somehow. Uh, It was popular even in Paul's day. It was popular among the group called the Sadducees, uh, which you read about uh, in in the Gospels. It's a respectable spirituality rather than a supernatural one. Uh, But Paul, is he's kind of going off on that. And he begins by reminding them in the message of the message that they heard. You know, we preach to you that Jesus died. He died for your sins. He died on a cross. There was a sacrifice involved. And then he was raised from the dead. And this resurrection was witnessed by, again, literally hundreds of people, uh, some of whom are still alive, some of you probably know, at least you know me, and I saw this raised Jesus, he said. And Paul said, hold firmly to that word, hold firmly to that belief, otherwise you have believed in vain, otherwise it's all useless to you. To which I just say, wow, that's... That's quite a thing to say. So no, and you need to believe in an afterlife. Otherwise, uh, it's just, it's all for naught. Um, he says, uh, nominally, you've all agreed that Christ was resurrected from the dead. So why would you not believe that we will all be resurrected as well? He spends some time on that point for a while. And then kind of concludes at the end by saying, if If there is no resurrection of the dead, if there's only earthly life, then we, more than anyone else, are to be pitied. We are pathetic. Why? 
why is my question. I mean, if you don't believe in a resurrection and in an afterlife, in eternity, then this is all useless for you. Vain, pitiable, pathetic. I mean, he's really hammering this point. Why is it so important to believe in eternity? Well, I reflect on it. Here are a couple answers that I come up with. Answer number one. If you have the opportunity to live forever, that seems like something you'd probably want to know about. I mean, that seems like a pretty good benefit, uh, particularly if it's like living forget, forever in a, in a pleasant place under glorious circumstances. Is that, is, that, is that a good thing? You could very easily make the argument that that is like the best thing ever, right? That, if you take that seriously, I mean, that is kind of the answer to every problem, you know? It's like, yeah, whatever's going on with you, um, you do get to live forever in glory. Oh, that's happy. So if that is truth, if that is reality, then I don't know, I'm just saying it's probably worth knowing. Can I get a, can I get a we for that? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's not going to work long term, but. Point number two. Uh, I read this last line that you see up on the board, and this, this is the one that, that really gets me. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied more than all men. Paul is, is saying implicitly, this life is not enough to justify the cost that we bear in following Jesus. You know, there is a presumption in his statement that if there is no eternity, then my life is going to look pathetic to people, right? Um, evidently, in Paul's mind, that once you, once you start following Jesus, your life, your life starts to look kind of sucky to observers. In the original Greek, the word is sucky. Um, there's, something, there's something about you that would look pathetic, that would look pitiable to any onlooker unless that onlooker realizes that you're going to get an eternal life payoff, right? I think, you know, a casual observer that knows nothing about eternity, nothing about God, uh, take a, who takes a look at what Mindy has done to her life, would probably pity the girl. That's, that, that's just pathetic. You had a good thing going on. You know, what, what are you doing? That, that's, just, that's just stupid. Um... So there's this idea that Paul has is that, well, that's, that's what life with Jesus looks like. You know, it looks stupid unless it is understood in light of eternity. Right. A couple things going on here. One, a belief in eternity, and one, an idea of what the proper Jesus life looks like. It looks rough. It will involve some sacrifices. Uh, one reason is, is because following Jesus calls for real love. Paul has made clear in chapter 13 in this book, most famously, that a life of faith is a life of love. What is love? Well, love is not self-centered. It does not seek its own, Paul said. Love is always about the other. So you're constantly pouring out your life for someone else, even to the point of making yourself miserable, even to the point of making yourself, well, well, dead on occasion. Paul would die for his faith. Cephas, who he mentions, would die for his faith. Of course, Jesus died and they all had struggles uh, along the way. Why would you sacrifice your life for someone else? 
unless you get a new one later. You know, that's the only thing that makes sense of the economy of love. We are willing to die and suffer for Jesus and his causes because Jesus is good enough to give us another life later. You know, there is eternity. I don't get paid enough to live this life, neither literally nor metaphorically. Um, don't get paid enough, but my retirement package is unbelievable. You know, I mean, after I die, I'm set for life and, and a glorious life uh, it will be. Following Jesus may well cause you to uproot your life, to leave where you're comfortable, to risk death in some foreign place, maybe. It could happen. It's happened here before. Or it may cause you to stay put where you are and to hang out with people uh, whom you find frustrating or boring or really incompetent or thick-headed. Very discreetly, just look to your left and your right right now and just, yeah. Amen. Um, it will, I'm quite sure, following Jesus, will give you a very interesting life. Your life will be way more interesting than it would otherwise be if you get serious about following Jesus. Uh, but it will also have some drudgery in it because it will be a life of sacrifice and service to other people. So there's, there's that too. Uh, it's a life following Jesus that will bless you beyond imagining but it will also be a life that just doesn't work for you. It will be both simultaneously. Uh, it will be a life of tremendous love, like the world scarcely knows. But it will also be a life that doesn't really feel like falling in love, if you know what I mean. It will be a life of great joy, provided that you don't expect a lot of shallow joy. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I mean by that? It will be a life of great joy, provided that it's not a life of shallow joy. <laughs> a life of expecting shallow joy. Do you think you get that? I think, I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, in this life you will have trials and tribulation. In this world you will have trials and tribulations. But fear not, I've overcome the world. You know, life is going to be a bit sucky. But fear not, it's really joyful uh, in eternity greater joy uh, than this uh, you, will, you will experience. Okay, so I have some takeaway points from, from this then. Uh, point number one, I think the obvious one, it's an occasion for a little self-inventory. Uh, is my life really built on eternity that way? Do I have an eternity-required sort of life? Am I living this earthly life in such a way that eternity is required to make sense uh, of it? Am I living for now or am I living for then? You know, the capital T, uh, then. And what does, what does the difference look like? How would I know anyway? And then I ask myself this. Can people look at my life and say, if there is no God, that guy is pathetic. If there is no God, if there is no eternity, then that Jordan Sang is an utter, utter idiot. Is that, is that what's happening. Might people look at my life and say, what's he doing? That makes no sense to me. Or if you want to generalize it a little bit, does your life make people ask why? Why in the world does she live like that? What do you think? 
That to me is, is a very powerful self-inventory question. You know, people who look at my life think, what in the world? What am I missing? You know, and the answer has to be eternity. Because if people are looking at your life like that, if they're looking at you and thinking, man, what a pathetic life. What a strange and inexplicable life. Then that would be, that would be healthy. That's the kind of life that Paul seems to expect out of his churches. And then I think of the great heroes of the Bible. I think of Paul. I think of Peter. I, I think of Jesus. And I ask myself, uh, would I envy their lives? Um, would, you, would you like to have the life that Jesus had? Would you like to have the life that Paul had? And I think my answer is, well, yes and no, actually. You know, as I, more than anything, I want a fruitful life. I want a life filled with purpose. And, you know, Jesus' life, a short 33, 35 years, the last few were sort of glorious and really hard, and then he was tortured to death. Okay, that was a bit of a downer. Um, but he did change the world with his life. You know, Paul, the same, greatest church planner in world history, eventually got his head chopped off by a very wicked Roman emperor named Nero. Um, next week, uh, in the final chapter, he talks a little bit about the various ways that he suffered. I mean, he did suffer for the name of God. It was a very hard life to live. But then again, it was a very fruitful and purposeful life. So, yeah. No, yes, yes and no. I find, I, in that light, I find this letter uh, terribly challenging, this letter to the Corinthians. As Paul has characterized faith together, what it, what it should be like for us in a community of faith, following Jesus together. Paul has said that we are to gather together and that our assembly should not be defined by small things like doctrinal squabbles or who believes in that arcane piece of the gospel or this, but rather our gathering should be defined by, do you remember? Actually by power, that when we come together, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst should manifest with some life-changing power. Um, he said that the church is primarily a place of great purpose. So we, who are the building blocks of the church, the living stones, should get rid of anything that compromises our testimony and our power. In other words, we should get rid of sin. We should get rid of earthly distractions. Paul spends a few chapters just harping on the Corinthians about that. Do you remember? He said, eventually I'm going to visit you again. Do you want me to come with a smile on my face or do you want me to come with power, cracking the whip? Come on, remember who you are. Remember that you're people of purpose and do not use your freedom to sin. You know, you are free in Jesus. You are free from the law. You are free from judgment. But it's not, hey, we're free. We can relax now. It's, hey, we're free. Let's change the world. Let's get busy because now we can do uh, anything. He's explained how we're all equipped for ministry. We all have been given supernatural gifts from the Holy Spirit, gifts that vary greatly one from another. And he explained that a healthy church is where everybody uses his or her gifts together because we are a people of purpose. We should be moving forward and everybody should be included in mission, in purpose, in ministry. And the thing that guides those gifts is love. He's made that statement very strongly. You should use them selflessly, self-sacrificially. And I think we could sort of paraphrase 
in summation here in chapter 15 and say, you won't pull all of that off unless you keep eternity in view. Unless you are an eternity-minded person, you won't be able to pull off your mission or your purpose. You will get distracted. You won't live for heaven. You'll compromise with the world. You'll compromise with your circumstances in some fashion. You just will. You have to be anchored in eternity. If you're not, you become useless, you believe in vain, and you are to be pitied. Sober stuff, but inspiring stuff at the same time. My little boy, Jeremiah, is nine years old. Jeremiah is not, is not a young person possessed of laser beam focus. Like a lot of little boys, he has too much energy for his little body, too much energy for his little brain, you know. Uh, he doesn't have uh, sort of a, you know, put your nose to the grindstone and get the job done. He has sort of a chase butterfly sort of personality and mentality. He takes after his mom. That's what it is. It's true. Uh, in, in wonderful ways uh, as well. But, you know, as in the case of a lot of little boys, we are constantly trying to keep him on task, you know, get, get him back to what he's supposed to do. And, uh, and one thing we got going for us is Star Wars. Uh, he, he loves Star Wars and he knows it. And there's that scene in the original Star Wars, not, not like original in the chronology of the epic, but the first movie, right? I mean, the real Star Wars, right? Like, let's face it. Uh, at the end of Star Wars, and you all know Star Wars, right? Now that I'm talking about Star Wars, you're tracking. Before when I was talking about scripture, and eh, not so much. But Star Wars, you understand, correct? Amen? All right, all right, good. Um, the end of the original Star Wars, they're trying to blow up the Death Star. Because some idiot architect has designed the Death Star in such a way that there's an exhaust port. And if you drop a stick of dynamite in it, it blows up the core and the entire thing, even though it's the size of a planet, will disintegrate. It's really, really bad product design, incidentally. Always bugged me, even when I was a 10-year-old watching Star Wars. But I digress. All right, so the X-Wing fighters of the rebel forces are zooming onto the Death Star, and they're trying to drop a bomb in this exhaust port that, as we come to find out, is about the size of a womp rat. Anybody? Come on, are there no true Star Wars fans? It's about yay big. And, and this exhaust port, for whatever reason, is at the end of a long alley. And so the X-Wing fighters are zooming into the alley. They're dropping down into this ditch, into this culvert. And they're zooming down there. Uh, but the Imperial forces are coming, and they're picking off these fighters with their, with their guns before they, they make it to the exhaust port. This, this is the, the apex of the movie right here. Uh, very very uh, dramatic scene, and they keep coming in, and then they keep getting blasted before they get there. And there's this one sort of long scene where the X-Wing fighters are zooming toward the exhaust port to drop the bomb into it, and, and uh, there are bombs going off, laser beams uh, to their left and to their right, and, and the guys are saying, pull out, pull out, they're going to get you, and the commander says, stay on target, stay on target. You know the scene? All right, well, that's the one we used for Jeremiah. Son, stay on target. Stay on target. Just, just Death Star, right? It's like, oh, right, right. Stay on target. I think the guy who stayed on target, gets, he gets blown up, doesn't he? But we, we don't dwell on that. It's an imperfect analogy. You know, Luke comes in. He uses a force. God always guides. It's, it's a beautiful spiritual epic. Amen. George Lucas be glorified. I don't know. 
I think 1 Corinthians, at the end of the day, is kind of about that. It's a book about staying on target. The practical life of faith together means staying on target. And we have to really encourage and remind ourselves uh, to do that. Don't get distracted by nonsense. Don't get distracted by stupid doctrinal squabbles. Do not get distracted by sin. Come on. You're better than that. You're more purposeful than that. Don't let sin take root in your church. Don't tolerate that nonsense. Not because God's going to get you, but because you're just selling yourself short. You've got a mission. You've got a target. You know? And... And to understand it, you have to understand the way of love. And you have to understand eternity because ultimately your target is where? It's in eternity. And you have to stay on it. And we all have to work together to stay on target. Anybody feel on target in life today? This, today? You feeling on target? Who feels on target? Cool. Anybody feel off target today? Anybody feel off target? Yeah. I think that's the, that's the meditation that Corinthians leaves me with, uh, ultimately. Am I living an on-target life? Oh, it's going to be life-risking, you know, death-defying, very purposeful, very focused. Hard, but eternally uh, wonderful. So a few questions to help you out with that meditation. Do you have an on-target life? Number one, how wonderful is eternity? How wonderful is eternity? I don't know, but I have forever to figure it out. Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind conceived what the Lord has in store for those uh, who trust him. Um, It's more glorious than can be described. It's going to be surprising. But we are told that it's worth it, and that's really the substance of faith. Eternity is worth whatever you might experience here. Uh, makes me ask myself, am I sacrificing this life for eternity? Am I living the sort of life that is pathetic unless I get an eternal life? As I ask myself that question, I feel like, well, yeah. I, I mean, I think I could in good conscience say, yeah, I would not live this life if there were no eternity. I think I could also do better, uh, for sure. But something to ask yourself. And then finally, am I experiencing the joy of a life anchored in eternity? Am I freed from that? Am I at peace and celebrating because there is an eternity? And in my own life, to be honest, I'd have to answer, well, yes and no. You know, I'm, I'm doing loads better uh, than I've ever done in that regard. I'm working on it. One of the reasons we're having this all-church retreat uh, is, is about this. I think the Lord is speaking this into our church, over our church. I think he's inviting us to deepen our worship of him. What is worship, after all? Well, it's a number of things, but one thing it is, is it's, a, it's bowing down before the Lord without calculation. Well, you're not doing the math anymore. You're just saying, you are God, I am yours, and the math will work out in the end. I will sacrifice whatever I have. I will sacrifice any dream. I will sacrifice whatever kind of relationship. I will sacrifice whatever I have materially. I will sacrifice all of my comfort. I will go where I need to go. I will be with whomever I need to be with. I will do it all happily because eternally it's going to be wonderful. 
And worship, in a way, is sort of a, a celebration of eternity now. It's spending some time in eternity. Spending some time in heaven, in a sense, if you will. And being a heavenly-minded people and really exercising that. And I think unless we do that well, we always hit a snag in life. We always stray off target. We always get stuck in the mud. Worship is where the energy and the passion comes from in life. Because eternity sometimes doesn't come naturally to us. You have to work at it. Let's pray. Father, I pray, as your scripture says, that you would set eternity in our hearts, that you would give us an assured hope, just a foretaste of things to come, that you would make us eternal people, even as we live life in this temporary body. Your universe is strange and wonderful, Lord. I pray that you would make us the type that walks in the, the upper reaches of it. Help us to transcend and to find peace in all circumstances. And in the name of Jesus, brothers and sisters, I, I bless you with the peace of eternity this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, remove from our minds uh, the burdens of distraction and, and just show us the target. Settle upon us, Lord, uh, the idea of pilgrimage. Give us the right idea about life. Speak, Lord. I pray, Father, for a move in our midst that you would really release that spirit of worship and that you would release the joy of eternity, that we would be people strong in the joy of the Lord. A joy that has no root in circumstance, but every, every root in heaven. I bless you in the name of Jesus with the virtue of joy, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, and peace. I pray, Lord, that you would give us pitiable lives. That though pitiable are glorious. Uh, lead us forward on this adventure. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.